The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think the question is not about should we have some spyware or not, it's more about how do we control that? Who is in charge of controlling any kind of misuse? And what is the mechanism to protect citizens if tomorrow they learn that they, they have been targeted? So it's more about that. And more than one year after the publication of the Pegasus project, we don't have so far anything more to protect the citizens. So. This is why we should be concerned, but we still have a cyber industry extremely resilient and that is signing contracts after contracts day after day. I am Eugenia Lohtogi, fellow in technology policy and law at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, January 17, 2023. I sat down with Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigon to talk about their new book, Pegasus. Laurent is the founder and executive director of Forbidden Stories, and Sandrine is its editor-in-chief. Along with Amnesty International Security Lab, they led the investigative effort by 17 international media organizations that, in July 2021, exposed how some governments regularly used the Pegasus spyware against journalists, human rights activists, political dissidents, and others. Their new book tells the story of how they conducted this investigation. We discuss the operational security concerns they had to balance, how they coordinated this international effort, and the impact of their work. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 17, 2023. How a spy in your pocket threatens the end of privacy, dignity, and democracy. Before we uh, talk about the book, I think it would be great if you could maybe provide us an overview of your investigation, just to give a sense of the scope of this issue. This investigation about uh, the spy work called Pegasus is a very uh, unique investigation, uh, as I think it's uh, for the very first time since the Snowden revelation, so more than 10 years after that, we were able to reveal the, the faces of uh, who are the victims of the cyber surveillance, of a massive cyber surveillance campaign. And um, we were having access to a huge leak, a list of 50,000 phone numbers uh, potentially targeted 
by many state actors, many dangerous states were both using a spy world called Pegasus. And this in, this investigation is about that. That's the story of 80 journalists who decide to work secretly to reveal a large threats against democracy, something that you never know, something that is really invisible, but something that is very dangerous and that is a, a threat for all of us. And it's not only about um, head of state being spied, it's, it's about your neighbors, it's about your, yourself, because you are a journalist, because you are a lawyer, because you are a human rights defender, and you might be the next one on the list. So the book is about how 80 journalists uh, were able to reveal that uh, scandal and how Sandrine and I were leading that investigation to make sure that at the end we were having access to that kind of information. And yes, that's about that. And just a quick reminder, so the, the Pegasus project was published in July 2021. It's an international investigative project coordinated by Forbidden Stories here in Paris with the technical help of Amnesty International Security Lab. And it's important to insist on that because they have been um, central in the process in setting up the security protocol, but also in helping us Uh, finding traces of, of uh, Pegasus spyware in phones. And this was really critical for, for the investigation. And we did that project. We worked that, on that project, as Laurent uh, said, with uh, 80 journalists from 16 media organizations around the world. And we all revealed at the same time the scope of, of that um, uh, surveillance um, system that was possible thanks to, to, to Pegasus spyware that is sold by the Israeli company NSO. Pegasus is quite a sophisticated tool and it can kind of be hard to explain. So could you tell us what is Pegasus? How does it work? What does it do? What, what did you find during this investigation about that? Pegasus is a, is a spyware sold by a company, the NSO group that is based in Israel. And that's a spyware that is extremely advanced. That means with that kind of spyware, you can take entirely the control of the device of your target. You can activate the camera, you can activate the microphone, you can read the encrypted messages the person is receiving or is sending to another person. Pegasus is basically like a person over your shoulder can watch what you are, what you are watching, can read what you are reading. And it's, um, it's uh, even if it's encrypted. So it's a, it's a spyware that has been designed, conceived by NSO group who is working with a lot of former military people. And it's considered as a military weapon. It's classified as a military weapon. To export and to sell Pegasus, you need a license delivered by the Ministry of Defense of Israel. And this is what uh, NSO is doing. So they are selling a spyware, uh, that, which is a military weapon. And what we were able to discover during the Pegasus project, that this military weapon, that spyware, were used massively against civilians. And another thing specific about Pegasus, so Pegasus is designed to, to take control of uh, smartphones and using zero-click attacks, which means that you, when, if you're targeted and you, you don't see anything, you don't have to click on a message to be infected or hacked. 
uh, it's almost totally invisible. So the, the, the victim doesn't even realize that he's being spied on or that something suspicious is happening on, on, on its phone. And in your book, you talk about some of the devices suffering several infections, right? So this was continuous. Is that correct? Yes, be because if you're infected, but you switch off your phone, Pegasus will be automatically disinstalled from, from the, the phone. So the attacker needs to reinfect your phone, which means that you can be uh, reinfected as, as many times as, as, as they want. So, and this is very important. We've been, uh, for example, analyzing the, the phone of Ismaila Kadijo. Kadija Ismailova, sorry. So just, um, yeah, we've been uh, analyzing the phone of this uh, uh, journalist from Azerbaijan who's been targeted uh, dozens of times with Pegasus. And we see those traces in, in her phones thanks to Amnesty International Security Lab uh, method uh, that help us doing that. So in your book, you talk about the clear seduction of a tool like Pegasus and how having it available can become really tempting. So, Laurent, you talked about some of the existing controls over who can buy the tool. You talked about the Israeli Ministry of Defense regulations. How have those fared? Can you maybe explain those in a bit more detail? What does the process for acquiring a tool like this one looks like? Yeah, so there is two stories or two, two, two ways to answer that. There is the official narrative of NSO and there is the reality. The official narrative of the, the company that is selling that spyware is that they are only selling the spyware Pegasus to catch the bad guys, to catch terrorists, to catch criminals. And they are only selling that to state actors. What we were able to discover during this investigation that actually we, Khadija Ismirova, the journalist in Azerbaijan, she's not a terrorist. Or Kamen Aistegi, she's a journalist in Mexico and she's not a terrorist. So we were able to reveal that a lot of people should not be on that list, should not be the victim of that kind of spyware. And there, there is a global misuse of the spyware. So officially, NSO is selling that only to catch the bad guys. In reality, what we, what we saw that there is no mechanism to control that. There is no way for NSO to prevent that. Uh, when NSO is selling, by the way, the spyware, they always say to the customer, uh, we will never know about your targets. We will never know and we don't want to know who, you, who do you want to target. That's the key thing. When you are, if you are selling a weapon, M16 or any kind of military weapon to someone and you tell the person, I don't care about who you want to kill, it's an issue because there is still a question of responsibility, accountability, regulation. And this is where we are now with, this, with that cyber industry, with the lack of regulation, where you have a private company who is selling, that is selling some surveillance system to state actors. And there is no mechanism to verify and to check, to double check how this spyware is used against the people or for what kind of purposes it's used. So this is why it's very concerning for all of us and why we should be very worried about that because there is nothing to protect the citizens. As a citizen, you don't know that you are the target because it's an invisible attack. 
It's what we call a zero-click infection. You are infected, you are trapped, and you don't know that. And even if you know that, what will you do with that? Will you be able to target, uh, to, will you be able to sue the company, NSO Group in Israel? Maybe you will lose at the end. Will you try to sue the company, Apple or another company who was sending you the device you were targeted through? I'm not sure you're going to win. Or will you try to sue the government, the country, who is the customer of NSO and was using the spyware against you? And of course, this country will always deny using NSO. So there is there are a lot of victims there, and there is no mechanism to help the victim to seek in seeking justice. So this is why we need urgently some regulation about that. Otherwise, we will have hundreds of Pegasus running over millions of devices in the next few years. So yeah, this is how it works for now. So. NSO is supposed to be limited to licensing tools like this to government agencies. But in your book, you do talk about a line of investigation that proved that a private company um, in Mexico was using Pegasus. Yeah, no, the thing is, on the not specifically about Urian's backer, but about, about the company NSO and how they are subcontracting and contracting with all the companies based in Europe, based in Central America and South America, they're building businesses based on, on local partnership. Uh, when you are in Mexico, if you want to reach out to the Mexican market, you need to have a local partner on that. You need to have a local agent for that because you will have to sign a contract with a national entity, a national organism. So you need to be incorporated with a local uh, Mexican entity. And this is how NSO, but also other uh, in companies in the same kind of industry were uh, were acting. Uh, the thing is that uh, is the lack of transparency behind that and uh, and accountability. And I think that that's also why what the the PEGA committee, the committee, the Commission of Investigation at the European Parliament is working about is how to control the subcontractors and the contractors of those cyber uh, intelligence company. Now, I know your book is focused on Pegasus, your investigation focused on Pegasus, but this is not the only tool, right? Uh, and NSO is not the only company that offers this kind of surveillance services. Maybe you could give us a sense of what the market itself looks like. Um, what are some of the incentives and the interests at play? Yeah, of course. I mean, we are in, in the book, uh, there are large parts of the book dedicated to, to the market. It's it's a market we have started investigating years ago when, when we worked on the cartel project as Forbidden Stories. And we actually discovered that even before 2015 and, and hacking team leak, uh, there were uh, spying tools often used on, on computers, by the way, and not smartphone at the time that were already being used by governments to target not only terrorists uh, or criminals, but also journalists. So, I mean, this has been the the, the, the case uh, for years. What is different with the with NSO is that NSO is probably the first company that focused exclusively on smartphones, which was quite a, a bold decision to take at, at the time. And uh, this is also what probably explains 
the um, the technology expertise and and the advance NSO has on on other companies. But we've been we've been uh, watching other companies selling the same kind of of tools, and with many speaks of Predator uh, right now, which is another spying tool used against. Greek journalists. So, I mean, there has been more than one company in, in Israel, but also in Germany or in Italy that were uh, selling spying tools to, to, to governments always under the, the, I mean, the legitimate reason that uh, some of these tools were very important to fight terrorism or, uh, or, or, or criminals or drug trafficking. But the reality is that once in the hands of of, of governments, uh, we don't know how those tools can can be, in fact, really used. And just to add something to the, to, to what someone just said about how is the, this market, how this industry is going. Actually, this industry is going very well. It's a very, very profitable sector. It's a very profitable sector, very recreative sector, where you have one NSO that is on the radar, but you have so many hundreds of other companies who are uh, producing spyware, maybe not as advanced as Pegasus, but who are really on the field, on the battlefield. And uh, there is a lot of money to make because there is a lot of interest and a lot of state actors who are ready to pay millions, hundreds of millions to get some licenses to infect people because they want to track the dissidents, because they want to track journalists, because they want to track lawyers. And one thing that is very interesting about describing the market is, is uh, if we can speak about that for a few a few minutes, is about the uh, zero days. There is an industry called the zero days where you have people, mostly hackers, who are selling to company like NSO, selling to state directly some um, failures, vulnerabilities that they were able to find into this new application that you can have on iPhone. If they find one vulnerabilities on an iOS system, on a Mac, on a, on a cellular system, on any kind of new application on WhatsApp or other things, they can sell that for $1.5 million. And so if you are a hacker that's spending your time identifying zero days exploits vulnerabilities to to resell that to brokers or to sell that to NSO or to sell that to some state intelligence services that could be very profitable and so the NSO company as other ones in that kind of businesses where you have very few regulation very few law no regulation no uh, in, very difficult for journalists to investigate very few traces of infections and a lot of money to make. So this is why in our book we <laughs> explain that it's a big risk for for democracy. But actually, even if NSO is now on the radar, is we shed the light on that company and maybe this company will vanish, will disappear because of this reputation crisis, crisis they are facing now, uh, I'm sure we will have many other NSO uh, many other companies who are already in the in the field and who are selling the same kind of of spy war to the same kind of states who will do the same kind of uh, uh, human rights violation by tracking the people they should not track. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So now that we have kind of an overview of Pegasus and NSO, um, Sandrine, I would really like to turn to you and discuss one of the things that I found really fascinating about the book, which is the detailed explanation of how an investigation at, at this scale was conducted. A big part of this was coordinating with partners. You had to operate in secret. Can you kind of walk us through how you went about it? Yes, of course. Um, as Laurent said, the starting point of that uh, investigation is that list of 50,000 phone numbers that we got access to with Amnesty International. So basically, uh, we had in our hands a list of phone numbers that were potentially targeted with Pegasus, but we didn't know who was behind those numbers, who the numbers belonged to, and we didn't um, know for sure that the phone had been infected. So this required a huge amount of work, and we... Uh, very quickly realized that we couldn't do that on our own, even with the help of Amnesty International Security Lab. And we have, uh, as Forbidden Stories, founder, director, and, and editor-in-chief and experience in coordinating collaborative projects. This is what Forbidden Story is about. We are a consortium of journalists uh, that pursue the work of, of threatened journalists, and we're doing that as a, as a collaborative force. So we already had partners we were working with, we were trusting, and the the challenge of that investigation was reaching out to partners, creating that consortium, that big collaboration force task, without raising too many alarms, because we were investigating basically a spying tool, and we knew that we could be also targeted ourselves uh, while investigating that. So we had to be very cautious in the way we approached our partners, in the way we briefed them, in the way we communicated on the investigation. And this was even made more complicated because it happened at the, at the time of uh, the, the, the worst of the COVID crisis. So it was very difficult to travel. It was very difficult to see people in person. And we had to be very creative uh, yeah, to, to convince people that we really need, needed to see them, uh, to convince to buy them new devices so we could communicate easily. And this was, yeah, this was probably the, the first big challenge we, we had to face to make that work. Yeah, in the book, you have really fascinating descriptions of how you had to conduct remote forensics on some of the phones. 
Yeah, exactly. We so one of of course uh, one of the important thing we had to do before publishing that story was to prove that indeed the 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 victims we were uh, we were mentioning had been indeed really infected with Pegasus spyware, and the only way to do that is to have uh, access to all the data that you have on the phones, uh, so you can analyze them and find traces of of Pegasus activity. And we worked on on that with uh, Claudia Garneri and uh, Donica O'Carroll, who are two experts of Amnesty International Security Lab who have been working for years on Pegasus and who are really the one able to see those traces. But of course, to do that, they need to have access to the phone. So they were doing that with the phone in hand before that project. And for that project, they had to uh, set up a method that enabled people to basically download parts of their phone where we could find or where we could hope to find traces of Pegasus and send them to Claudio and Donka uh, to have them analyze the, the phone. So we did that. I mean, and they did that. Uh, to, to, to be fair, they are the one who, who really created that that platform, that methodology, and to, to be able to analyze remotely the phones of some victims in India or in Azerbaijan or in Hungary. And this is how we discovered that journalists uh, in, in India or uh, in Azerbaijan, uh, like Katija Ismailova, we spoke about, uh, had been indeed hacked with Pegasus. And you had very strict security and operational protocols as i understand could you maybe give us a rundown of some of the, some of those i i know you had to meet without phones you had to see each other in person how how did you go about developing that trust and and that safety what were the risks that you were willing to take the risk of this investigation this this investigation was way more complicated than the all the other ones we were uh, leading until that one it was very risky, first, because we were investigating dangerous people, dangerous states, states as like the Saudis, they are able to kill a journalist within the, within the consulate or the Azerbaijani uh, government or other governments who have very bad track record in terms of human rights violations. So we were investigating that kind of guys, that kind of governments, authorities, very dangerous one. Uh, not only one, but um, around 10 of them, 10 states, plus one company called NSO Group, who is a very secretive company, who is close to ma many military forces because they do sell the spyware. Their customers are military units or intelligence units. And so the last thing that we wanted was to be on their list. So we were having access to a leak, a list of phone numbers of people potentially targeted, and we didn't want at all to be the next one on the list, to be targeted. If one of us were hacked, that was the end of the project. If one of us were surveilled, then our source will be in danger. Then our investigation will be terminated because one state then will be able to speak to NSO, they would have been able at that time to understand what we were doing. So, so because of that level of risk, because of what source protection uh, implies, we decided to 
run this project and to coordinate this project in a very, very different way than the other ones. So I cannot reveal here what kind of tool, what kind of application we were using, of course, but we were able, thanks to the help of Amnesty International Security Lab, we were communicating through highly encrypted platforms without using phones for months, uh, which is quite difficult. When you're a journalist, the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning is to check your messages, is to send some WhatsApp messages to people. And then for that investigation, we ask all the partners, 80 person, to uh, forget about that and to do it another way and to use some other kind of devices to encrypt every single communication and uh, and to be extremely uh, uh, secret even with our own entourage. We knew that if at some point some people from the intelligence community learn about the existence of this project, then we will be uh, the next target. Because having access to that list, having access to that list of phone numbers can give you a lot of information about state secrets. You know from that list who is spying on who all over the world, who is potentially targeting another person. So you have the phone numbers of many persons of interest and and so many state secrets, many, uh, you can see the tension from another country to another country between two countries. So, so that list is extremely valuable for intelligence services and we wanted to protect that we didn't want to be hacked. We didn't want to have someone coming from the window into the offices of uh, Forbidden Stories. Uh, or we didn't want to have our source in danger. So because of all of that, we had to take some extreme measure to, to communicate over all the platforms that we cannot reveal here to uh, uh, make sure we can, we can run the project. So after your investigation came out, uh, there's certainly been a lot of attention paid to the issue. There's been more reporting. There's been an investigation by the European Parliament. Uh, the U.S. has blacklisted NSO Group. What do you make of these efforts? Are they a step in the right direction? Are they effective enough? I think that, uh, yes, it's the thing is with the Pegasus Project, and with the publication of our um, 80 partners, 80 journalists, we show and we explain to the world that there is no regulation, a lot of victims, and nobody is building any mechanism to protect us, to protect all the victims. And so it's a wide west. So right after the publication, we were having like many protests in India, uh, we were having uh, the U.S. authorities deciding about blacklisting NSO, uh, making sure that uh, not a single American entity can contract with the, the NSO group. Uh, we were having many decisions uh, in France or in Europe to create some uh, Pegasus Committee investigation within the European Parliament to make dozens of hearings from NSO people to the victims, from politicians to industry players. But at the end, what do we have today? Uh, there is no more regulation. There is no more transparency from states. I think one thing that is that made a lot of difference is how the company Apple decided to react after that. And that's a very good sign for the future, I think. You have a company, 
that has a lot of money, of course, who is now notifying any single victims they are able to monitor. When they think, when they suspect NSO to attack some of their customers, basically someone who, who bought an iPhone before, who is a, an iPhone owner, they will notify the victim and they will tell the victim that we suspect that you are uh, you have been attacked by a state actors. And so, and Apple did, uh, is not only notifying people, notifying pot- potential victims, they are they they do sue. They decided to sue the the NSO group as well. So that's I think one of the answer to protect uh, or to invent or to protect at least the citizens can come from the Silicon Valley, where you have a lot of money, so you have a lot of power, and you have a lot of people who can make a difference. Then it's really up to governments in the US, in the EU, uh, European Union, to build some some regulation. But the, the key question here is what kind of regulation do we want? Uh, what is the problem? Do we want to ban? Do we want to ban any kind of spyware? I think that we need we need to have some spyware or we need to have our authorities using spyware when they can catch a terrorist with that. That's a good news, of course. When they can catch criminals, of course. I think the question is not about should we have some spyware or not. It's more about how do we control that? Who is in charge of controlling any kind of misuse? And what is the mechanism to protect citizens if tomorrow they learn that they, they have been targeted? So it's more about that. And more than one year after the publication of the Pegasus project, we don't have so far anything more to protect the citizens. So this is why we should be concerned. But we still have a cyber industry extremely resilient and that is signing contracts after contracts day after day. And I think what the Pegasus project changed is really permitting and allowing um, public opinion to have that conversation about spying spying tools and uh, specifically that spyware. There had been some revelations on Pegasus before the Pegasus project, but they were all, always very limited and... Um, never uh, triggered that sort of attention. But I think given the, the scope of our revelation, the, the Pegasus project was really able to, to, to prove that this was not only a specific case of misuse in a specific country, but something very general and, and, and systemic. And, and, and this is why I think this global conversation was made possible. So this industry response to the investigation, is this a step towards the something that you touch upon in your book, which is the democratization of security tools? There's some some very interesting insights about how to make kind of these sort of tools that would allow you to better protect yourself or to be informed, how to make those more easily available or to make people more informed about how to how to protect themselves. I, th- I think the book is at least revealing that nothing can be safe, 100% safe. This is, we we were both as a journalist using Signal for years or encrypted messages. And now we know that a spyware like Pegasus is able to break that and to read even your encrypted messages. So so I think the Pegasus project was revealing that how how weak we are 
when we as a journalist, as a lawyers, as as civilians, as citizens, how far how, how violent could be the attack against us. And that attack is run by a military weapon with a military weapon, Pegasus. So so now I think of course there are some solutions like uh, using VPN, uh, having two or three kind of fonts, different fonts, or not using a SIM card, or encrypted as much as you can, everything. But uh, it's a it's a cat and mouse game. There is a, the solution that we will use uh, today will be really uh, uh, we need an update in, in in one year from now. So so yet I, I think it's talking about protection. The thing is more about how uh, is first about r- recognizing how weak we are when we're talking about the spy, the spy war and the threats caused by that kind of spy war. And so considering that when you are a journalist, you want to protect your sources. And so if you want to protect your sources, you need to communicate with them in the safest way you can. So meet them in person, making sure that you're not talking with them through a, uh, with a device that is having a SIM card with a phone number inside. So you cannot be targeted by that kind of spyware. So there are many things to do. And I think uh, I want to sort of remind something that Amnesty International Security Lab did was to make public and available for any citizens all over the world to use their methodology, uh, their tool to know if you were infected or not. And that was a major decision taken by the Amnesty International Security Lab team to uh, make it available. And so everybody is able now to to run some forensic on, on his own device and to find traces, even if, of course, we are more than one year after the publication and now NSO has maybe changed the way to infect uh, people and and maybe we won't find any more traces for now. But yeah, there were there were some reaction. But uh, still, the the perfect tool, the magic tool, the the the, the device that everybody can use today uh, without being tracked is uh, is not yet existing. Something that really stood out to me from the book is that you make a point of centering the journalists and the reporting that can be affected when governments try to stifle them. And of course, spyware just being one of many tools to accomplish that. So I'm curious to hear if you have any maybe final reflections about the broader context of threats to journalism that, that your book describes. I think one, one case that is quite important for us, and, and, and we have a whole chapter on, on that in, in the book, is, is the story of Omar Radi. Omar Radi is uh, is an investigative journalist, a Moroccan investigative journalist. We contacted him uh, a few years ago. He was at that time investigating um, land expropriation in Morocco. And uh, we were able to have his phone analyzed. It turned out that he was a, a Pegasus victim and has been had been spied on uh, for, for months uh, through Pegasus. And uh, and today Omar Adi uh, is in prison. Uh, he's been two years uh, behind uh, uh, in prison, and officially 
He has been accused and uh, convicted of rape and also of working with the with foreign agents. And and the reality is that uh, what we what we see from from uh, from this hacking is is that what he was working on was uh, deeply bothering uh, the Moroccan authorities and. Uh, he's not the first journalist, and he's far from being the only journalist uh, spied on with Pegasus. And um, yeah, w- clearly, what what we see is that most of the journalists who had been spied on ends up in prison in some countries. So even if if the link is not direct or proven, this is what happens to to them, and this is what happens to many journalists who are in jail or threatened everywhere in the world. There is a case of a journalist uh, called Cecilio Pineda in Mexico who had been killed uh, a few years ago and whom we discovered was uh, had been at least uh, potentially targeted a few weeks before being killed. So, of course, we were not able to get access to his phone and have, have the phone analyzed to confirm that his phone had been infected. But we, we have this correlation he he was uh, potentially targeted with Pegasus, and in, in a few weeks later, uh, he was assassinated. So, I mean, this is what happens, and and the the the, the spying tools are just one additional tool used in authoritarian regimes to uh, threaten, to pressurize journalists who are just doing their work, or uh, human rights lawyers, or political activists. They, there, there are of course uh, physical threats. There are legal threats, and uh, we now know that uh, uh, surveillance is just is just another tool used to to silence those who are threatening authoritarian regimes. It's true that maybe people get used about that. Like, okay, I know that I'm giving I'm giving up about my privacy, my data. Every single time I'm going to the supermarket, every single time I'm paying with my Visa card or when I'm subscribing to any kind of thing. And so maybe this is where we are now in 2023, <laughs> where we uh, we know that we don't have any more privacy because there is a business with our data and we are the product. The thing with, with the Pegasus project is, and why we, we, we should care about that, here, this is not a question about your own data. It's a question about your entire life and who is controlling what. If you are a journalist, they want to kill your story. If you are a lawyer, they want to know who who is your um, customer, who you will defend, what you, will be your line of defense. If you are a human rights activist, they want to know where you are organizing the next protests. Uh, they want to know everything about you, and so they do that because you are a danger for them. So, so this is why we should be very concerned, and we should not be giving up the fight against how to uh, keep our privacy and our data for us, and make sure that we have some regulation about that. But again, we are forbidden stories. We are just investigative journalists, and our role is not to make advocacy; is just to reveal misuse of that kind of spyware. Thank you. And I think that's a great point to end on. Laurent, Sandrine, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank Thank you you so much. much.
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.